is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the, blood, the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks both for reading. Morning, everyone. Now, in the East End, it's not unusual to hear about unexploded World War II bombs being discovered locally, uh, dropped during the Blitz and hidden under rubble ever since. I think there was a scare a couple of years back near the rectory, right, when they, they were excavating the site next to Richard's house. Uh, it reminds me of a TV documentary I watched a couple of years back where Gary Lineker, of course, was tracing the journey of his grandfather, I think, who fought in the Italian front in World War II. So as part of this, he was being guided over the foothills of the Alps where the fighting took place. And these hills have been largely untouched since World War II, and they're covered in old bombshells, mostly diffused and exploded. So he's walking along, and as he does so, he starts to poke and prod this massive shell. And his Italian guide grabs him by the arm and gestures, no, no, that one is live. That one could explode. Get away. Well, that's very similar to what Paul is doing in the Bible passage that was just read to us. The Corinthian Christians are playing with danger. They're poking an unexploded bomb. And Paul wants them to know that it could explode and that it could destroy them. The bomb in this case was food, food sacrificed to other gods, to idols, and eaten in ceremonies in local pagan temples, kind of the equivalent of communion, but for other religions in other temples. So I'm going to call these false god feasts throughout. So the Corinthian Christians are beginning to join in with these ceremonies, or at least they're getting very close to doing so. And they thought it was harmless, as harmless as a diffused or exploded shell. These idols aren't real, was their case. And so the food is just food. So this is harmless for Christians to join in with. That was their case. They're poking it with a stick. And Paul says, no, no, this is dangerous. These false gods feasts could be really dangerous for you Corinthian Christians. And I guess 
therefore dangerous to us today as well. And so what we have here is a very explosive passage. It's the sternest part of the whole letter. Paul wants to leave them in no doubt of how dangerous it will be to keep joining in with the false god feasts. It could cost them everything. They could lose out on the prize at the end of the Christian journey. Paul's warning is this, don't be disqualified. Don't be disqualified. In the last, chapter, in the last uh, paragraph of chapter nine, which I think belongs really with the argument of chapter 10, Paul dis- compares the Christian life to a race. He says, verse 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Now he's not saying that only one Christian gets to heaven, and he's certainly not trying to get them to be competitive. Goodness knows the Corinthians didn't need more of that. Now his point is what he says in the next part of the verse. He says, run in such a way to win the prize. He's saying, think of the Christian life like a race and not like a jog. Think of it like a race and not like a Sunday morning stroll. It's not like the kind of running I do, where I kind of run for a bit, walk for a bit, sit down, get distracted, go and get something to eat, wander home. No, it's not like that at all. It requires focus, like an athlete focuses for the big day. It takes effort and focus to live the big principle of these chapters. Do you remember what it's been? Love God and people more than your freedoms. You don't live like that by accident. You live like that through focus, Paul says. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Just like when you see the Olympic athlete on the podium in tears because they know, they know they've reached the goal. They know that all the training, all the stress, all the early mornings was all worth it. So for us, living with Christian focus is so worth it. We thought about this a bit last week, didn't we? A crown that lasts forever. Ruling with Jesus, perfect world, forever. Well, what does this focused Christian attitude look like day to day? Well, Paul says what it means for him in the next couple of verses. In verses 26 to 27, he says, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he puts in effort to be self-controlled so that his body's less helpful desires what the old school Christians used to call the carnal desires, so that they won't get the better of him. Which in the metaphor of a race would ultimately lead to him being disqualified for the prize. Earlier in chapter nine, Paul said he was willing to become like a slave of everyone so that he could share the good news. But what a tragedy it would be if having taken up that servant attitude What a tragedy for his body and his carnal desires for food and sex end up enslaving him. What a tragedy, as he says, to preach to others, but
but to be disqualified himself. Sadly, that is a tragedy that we see all too often in the lives of Christian leaders. Paul's not showing off here. It's not the equivalent of those celebrity Instagram workout videos showing off how impressive he is, how focused he is. No, he's setting an example to follow. And I think he's also giving a little hint as to why the Corinthian Christians were tempted by these false god feasts going on locally. Maybe it was simple as their bodies, their stomachs, not being able to keep their desires under control. Since we're on the subject of racing, let's pick up the pace and move into chapter 10 because we've got quite a lot of text to cover. So Paul moves on from the everyday example of an athlete and moves to more powerful examples from the Torah, from the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which follow the Israelites through the Exodus and out into the wilderness toward the promised land. Now, sometimes in Paul's letters, he goes to great lengths to show the differences between Christians now and the Israelites under the Mosaic law then. But here, he actually goes to great lengths to show the similarities between us and them. He says in verse one, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea, They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. He's saying those Israelites, they had a lot going for them. Like us, they had a baptism of sorts. They ate spiritual food and drink like we take communion. And they even had the Lord Jesus himself with them in some sense. And yet, verse five, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Yikes. These blessed people who looked so spiritually secure on the outside, most of them did not make it to the promised land. They weren't focused on reaching that prize and they were disqualified. Paul brings the point to bear for us in verse six saying, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They were desiring evil things, he says, which sounds really dark, doesn't it? But what it actually looked like in practice, Paul clarifies in the next couple of verses, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. So what did it mean for the Israelites to desire evil when it looked like joining in idol worship and joining in sexual immorality? Idolatry is just the worship of false gods. And Paul quotes the most infamous moment when the Israelites did that. Maybe the most famous, the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, while Moses is up Mount Sinai receiving the law. When the priests led Israel to worship a golden cow instead of the true God. But Paul quotes quite an odd line from that story 
in verse 7. In fact, you may not even have noticed that that's where it comes from. He says, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Why does he quote that bit of the story? Well, just look at what's emphasized in that bit. Eating and drinking. So right there at the foot of Mount Sinai was a false god feast. Just like what was happening all around the Corinthian Christians in those local pagan temples. Now the golden calf incident, that was near the start of the Israelites journey in the wilderness. And the second kind of disaster that Paul refers to is from very near the end of the journey. That was when loads of Israelite men slept with loads of Moabite non-Israelite women. You can read about it and God's reaction to it in uh, Numbers 25. What did the Israelites do after joining the women? Well, let me read you uh, some verses from that chapter. It says, the, uh, the women invited them to the sacrifices to their God. The people, guess what, ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Israelites joined in in yet another false god feast and thousands paid the price of rejecting the Lord in that way. See how Paul here connects idol worship, sexual immorality. In fact, they're nearly always linked in the Bible. And it makes sense. If you're going to change your sexual partner, why not change your God too? And vice versa. I know we're pacing a bit here, but I hope you see how it's all coming together. Remember Paul, he disciplines his body and his desires for sex and food so that he won't get disqualified for the prize. But the Israelites in the wilderness, well, they did the opposite. They chose idolatry and with it the opportunity to satisfy all those desires for themselves. And in doing this, they rejected all the rescue and all the provision that the Lord had given them and was giving them. They weren't content with him. They weren't content with Jesus. I think that's what verses 9 to 10 are saying. It's a severe warning. The bomb of idolatry is a very live danger to the Corinthians and to us. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, Paul repeats, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We live in the culmination of the ages, Paul says. That's the time between Jesus ascending and returning. And have you seen how Paul has shown that this idol worship, these false god feasts, they're not a new problem. They're not a new temptation or an old temptation. It was not just Israel, not even just Corinth. Because verse 13, these temptations are common to mankind. To all people. That means you and me as well. It's that temptation to not be content with Jesus and to live in that kind of short-term bodily desires way of thinking instead, which in effect means turning away from him. Now we live in a time, though not necessarily a place, where idol religion is not as prominent as it used to be, but pagan practices are on the rise and we live in an area where there are several religions practiced by several of our neighbors. 
But the temptations for sex and food, greed, well, they never go away, do they? No matter where you live or what the surrounding culture is like. I remember uh, talking to one young student a few years ago, and he said he couldn't bring himself to follow Jesus because he liked casual sex too much. He was very open about that. But the second half of verse 13 offers a line of hope. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What a promise to hold on to in those temptations that surround us. This has all been leading to Paul's big warning, if you like, the big centerpiece of the chapter in verse 14, which is Paul's next point. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. That is, flee from idol worship. So that includes fleeing from these ceremonies and these activities that the Corinthians were going to or were thinking about going to. He says that's the worship of false gods, gods other than the true God of Jesus. And so get away from the false god feasts in the local pagan temples, Corinthians. Get away. Now that doesn't sound very multicultural, does it? And at this point, the metropolitan Corinthians reading this may have thought, oh, calm down, Paul. Stop being such a fundamentalist. What an over-the-top Puritan demands that is to flee from these other religions and their practices. But Paul doesn't think that's what he's doing. He's sure that this is a loving command. Verse 14, he says, my dear friends, more literally, that's my beloved, my beloved. And he thinks it's a very sensible command. Verse 15, he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He thinks it's perfectly well-reasoned what he's arguing. Remember, the Corinthians defended their going to these false god feasts by saying that the idols and the food, they don't mean anything spiritually. They're empty shells, harmless. Paul says, well, hang on a minute. If that's the case, tell me what you think is going on in communion, in the Lord's Supper, in the bread and wine. Verses 16 to 18, Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So Paul assumes that they know that communion, the Lord's Supper, is much more than an empty shell, much more than a bunch of empty symbols. The act of sharing the bread and wine, it means something. It means participation, sharing. There's a vertical to that, sharing in Christ himself. And there's like a horizontal level to that, sharing with one another, one with him and one with one another. It's a demonstration of belonging. As you take the bread and the wine, you're saying, I belong to Jesus and I belong with his people. And so, well, what's the flip side then for these false god feasts? Well, the sensible thing is to realize that these false god feasts in, involve a participation and a sharing 
with that false God and with the followers of that false God. It's saying, I belong here. And that's something that Paul really doesn't want the Corinthians to do. But hang on, Paul, I thought idols were nothing. There's only one God, right? Paul clarifies in verse 19. Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So an idol is nothing, as we saw in chapter eight, but behind the idols, like a villain in disguise, are demons. Paul is serious here, he's not messing about. He says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. And if this seems really weird to you, as it did to me at first, just remember what the devil and demons are out to do. Think about what he's been doing from the very beginning trying to pull people away from the true God, who is life, away from him and towards death. And that is exactly what idol religion does. It's what false gods do. There is rejoicing before the angels when a sinner repents and turns to Christ. But, and it pains me to say this, there must be rejoicing before the demons when someone turns away from Christ to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Muslim or a pagan. So which ceremony will it be, Paul asks? Which feast, which table will you join in with? Verses 20. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy are we stronger than he? Can't have both. And the reason we can't have both is because the Lord God is one and he's relational and he's intimate and he's passionate with a right kind of jealousy towards us. We can't have him and another. We can't cheat on him. He won't have it. It wouldn't be right. So it's a big no to taking part in false God feasts and the ceremonies of other religions. That is idol worship, Paul says, don't do that. But what about when the food that's involved in those ceremonies leaves the temples, leaves the place of worship and makes its way into everyday life, into the meat market, for example? So what happens when halal food is in the supermarket as a modern equivalent? Well, Paul answers that in the next few verses. And that he says, yes, the situation there is a bit different, but still remember the big principle. I hope you've remembered the big principle of these chapters by now, which is love God and people more than your freedoms. He says, let that be your guide when you're out in the world in these everyday, slightly more gray area situations. Love God and people more than your freedoms. Because freedoms is what the Corinthians kept going on and on about. Verse 23, I have the right to do anything, you say. But Paul re replies, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. See how he's reinforcing the principle. 
He wants their attitude to be prioritizing God and others, not themselves. The previous section focused on love for God. Now he talks about love for people, which in practice means, verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's saying when you're buying for yourself, it really doesn't matter the history of the food. It doesn't really matter how it got there because ultimately the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So I think this means you can buy the halal food in the supermarket if you're comfortable with that. Wherever it's come from, ultimately it's come from God. It is his like everything else in the world. And also because the supermarket is not a worship environment like a mosque or a temple or whatever. Maybe you think the line isn't as clear as that. And I understand that. I'm not sure it is that clear. Where would uh, an obviously Hindu or Muslim restaurant fit into all of this? I'm genuinely not sure. What about an invite from a friend? Verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. As a bit of comic relief, I really enjoy that Paul says, if someone invites you and you want to go. There you go. There's a biblical warrant for turning down an invite just because you don't want to go. It's almost like Paul was British. Anyway, so eat whatever you want on your own. You are free in Christ. But Paul says, well, things get a bit more nuanced once other people are involved, obviously, because we're trying to love God and people. So we're back to the idea of conscience from chapter eight. And he seems to say that if you're out for a meal and someone says to you, oh, this is sacrificed. This has been offered in sacrifice, sacrifice to idols. Then for the sake of that person, don't eat it, Paul says. It seems clear enough, but it's quite hard to apply in our lives, isn't it? I think it would be great to talk through maybe afterwards what this would look like. Does this mean we can't eat a meal given to us if the host or someone else says this is halal, for example? It does kind of look like that. Maybe that is the way to show love to that person by saying, I can't eat this because I follow Jesus. Or is Paul here talking about protecting a concerned fellow Christian, like it was in chapter eight? Well, maybe that's what's going on. If we're tempted to get too into the nitty gritty of what we can, can't do, Paul brings the overall principle back into full view to close out the whole section. Verse 31, so so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Love for God, let that be your guide. And love for people, verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. And remember from chapter nine that this is how Paul himself tried to live. He says, verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. 
but I don't think Paul wants the last word in this section to be about him. He would want it to end with Christ. And so I think the NIV is right in putting uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 in with this section, where he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The last word in this whole section about idle food and religious ceremonies and living to serve others, it all ends with the last word of Christ. It's all about him. It's his example of sacrificial love. It's his people we want to protect. And it's living in a way that points others to him so that they may be saved. I don't know where this lands for you. I don't know what your temptation is. But I know you'll have it because Paul says it's common to all of us. The pull away from Christ towards something. Maybe it is the pagan temple ceremonies. Maybe where your friends and family go. Maybe it's just as simple as greed, food or sex. And just wanting to be free of Christ. Well, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted more than you can bear. So let's bring it all before him now in prayer. Let's pray. Dear faithful God, thank you that you are our provider every day. Thank you that the earth is yours and everything in it. Thank you that even within the temptation, there is a way out with you. Please, Lord God, would that way out be lit up brightly in the minds and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. Would we relish sharing in Jesus Christ together and flee from wanting to belong to another? And we ask it in his name. Amen.